It's 9 o'clock at WPSL Port St. Lucie, and time for We Are Just Christians, live from Savona Church in Port St. Lucie. Here's your host, Mike Schmidt. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to We Are Just Christians. Really appreciate you tuning into the show today. Hope we got some interesting things to to talk about today on the show, and We Are Just Christians is a live call-in show brought to you by the Church of Christ on Savona Boulevard. My name is Mike Schmidt, as you just heard. I'm one of the hosts of the show. And with me today is Gary Jones. How you doing, Gary? I'm here this morning, Mike. We're, we're the elders of the Church of Christ on Savona Boulevard, and we bring you this show to introduce and talk about the idea of being just a Christian to the people here in Port St. Lucie. It's probably an idea that maybe you've heard about but haven't really examined very much, and so I think people are interested in that, which we we think. And so that's what we talk about. We talk about any kind of spiritual or Bible subject that you would like, and we point you back to the Scriptures for answers and guidance on how to how to decide about what to do and how to, how to live and what to think. And we're going to give you a Bible answer as best we can for anything that you bring up. As I m- mentioned, this is a live call-in show, so let me give you the contact information. There's one phone number for WPSL, which is Seven seven two three four zero one five nine zero seven seven two three four zero fifteen ninety is the number to call here to reach us uh, live on the air in Port St. Lucie. You can call that uh, any time during the show. We're going to try to take your call, and I'll repeat this as usual. We're not here to have an argument or a confrontation. If you disagree with us and you want to, uh, you know, disagree openly, that's fine with us. We don't mind that a bit. But we're not here to bait you or just say outrageous things and, and call get you to call up so we can embarrass you. That's the furthest thing from our mind. Uh, we don't mind you disagreeing or agreeing. Uh, we, we, we like people to call who disagree because it makes an interesting discussion. We also promise to give you the last word, meaning that we're not going to cut you off and, and uh, just ignore what you say. So we're going to give you the last word or whatever you want to say. But we talk about all different kinds of subjects on the show, uh, spiritual subjects, about different Bible doctrines and teachings, uh, things about apologetics and how we can believe the Bible. We talk about personal issues, personal character. Uh, we talk about all kind of, we don't mind talking about current things that are going on in society, issues, and we talk about those frequently, how they relate to what the Christian should think about those things, give you some thought, things to chew on, think about from a Bible perspective. We don't believe that just anything you believe is okay, as long as you're sincere, that makes something true. Sincerity has nothing to do with the truth, per se. Sincerity is important, but it's not not a key to finding out the truth. Jesus said in John 12, 48, And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. So it's not a matter of what you think, it's a matter of what Jesus said. What's true. Now, of course, our behavior in light of what we think is extremely important. And as I tell people before, you know, for example, love is, they want to talk about doctrine. Well, love is a doctrine, <laughs> okay? Lo- loving your neighbors yourself is one of the doctrines of God. So that's part of the doctrine, too. So how we act and what we do, how we behave is important to God and According to the scriptures, it is, but it doesn't. Me being sincere, being nice or not nice, doesn't determine the truth of a proposition one way or the other. So let me repeat the number: seven seven two three four zero fifteen ninety seven seven two three four zero one five nine zero is the number. You can also reach us by text, not only during the show, but at any time during the week. You can reach us by text. And we, there are two numbers. One is mine, Mike's, and one is Gary's. Uh, and my num- my text number is 772-260-6120. And Gary's number is 772-260-6220. 6120 is Mike's, 6220 is Gary's. So it should be easy to remember. Hopefully it should be. It just kind of worked out that way by accident. But you can text us during the show. People do. And we try to work those texts into the show, either directly or indirectly. 
or you can text us even during the week if you want to talk to us or communicate with us somehow. Those are the numbers are good all the time, and uh, we'll you know we'll try to respond to you as best we can. The best way to get through the show right now in the morning though is to call in. We're going to put you to the front of the line seven seven two three four zero fifteen ninety. We always come prepared with a couple things to talk about to get the discussion started. And if you want to break in and talk about those things, that's great. If you want to break in and change the subject, feel free to do that. Gary, you, you said you had something you wanted to discuss that you were well, studying you know, this week that was interesting. Right. I, I, I had been studying the character of a Christian. And, you know, last week we talked about uh, an old saying that popped up. Uh, it's better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt, which is kind of humorous but has an element of and we read a couple of passages in Proverbs where we think that came from. Those, those old sayings all right. come from Scripture. Right. And there's another one that I ran across when I was doing that studying was, uh, what do people think of when, they, when I say the apple of one's eye? What do you think of when I say that? And, and how does it come across? And, and actually it appears that that comes from several passages in Scripture again. Yes, it is, it's, a, it's a, a biblical phrase. It's a biblical phrase, and it's also an idiom, apparently, in the Old Testament, which is, you know, Mike, Mike and I have talked before about it's one of the more difficult things to understand sometimes in Old Testament and New Testament Scripture is the use of idioms, because they're, they're not, you know, exactly what we think. Like, uh, if you walk up to somebody who has spoken French all their life and say, he kicked the bucket... You, you get a blank stare. An idiom, the, come, come, the, that word itself comes from the Latin idios, which means self. So it's a, uh, a self-phrase. It's an autonomous phrase that you have to know the meaning of by itself. It doesn't come from right. some other broader context and language. Okay? Right. So kick the bucket is an idiomatic phrase or an idiom. And there's a, the Bible. Uh, Hebrew is a rich language. Uh, I don't speak Hebrew. I can can't really read it in Hebrew. I understand something about it, but it's a rich language, and the Bible is just filled from front to back with figures of speech and idioms that you have to, the translators have to wrestle with and bring into English so that they make some sense to the modern reader, and yet keep the original meaning or flavor. Some of these phrases, like apple of your eye, have come in, and we've adapted them into English, into their meaning, and then over time, of course, they get corrupted and changed a little bit from what they were. but Well, I wanted to go to a couple of passages. That, that Let me are... give you a quick example okay. of that here. My grandmother always talked about a, a, a little, she would say, a little bird told me. And, yeah. and that's and not a common expression anymore, but she'd say something, where, where did you hear that? Well, a little bird told me. What she was getting at is that you think what you've said is a secret, but or what you've done is a secret, but a little bird told me, and the Proverbs mentioned the fact that uh, uh, even the secrets of your bedchamber you know, are known by the birds, that kind of thing. So right. she was that's an idiom or expression, not used much anymore, but it comes from the Bible, and it became a common expression right. in more country kind of English. And so as we point, we try to point our listeners back to the Bible to understand, I'd like to read a couple of passages tonight. Uh, may bear with me. Uh, I know reading Scripture over the radio is probably not the best thing to do, but I want to go to Deuteronomy 32, and I want to begin about verse 9. And it says, for the Lord's portion his, people, portion his people, Jacob is the place of his inheritance. He found him in the desert land and in the wasteland, a howling wilderness. He encircled him, he instructed him, he kept him as the apple of his eye. And as an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings, so the Lord alone led him. There was no foreign god with him. So, in this case, Jacob, as a nation almost, is is the apple of God's eye. So, what do we think of when we mean that? It, you know, to me, that means God kept His focus, His eye, His vision, His His attention on Jacob, right. and He preserved him in the wilderness, right. which was not an easy thing to do in, in a lot of cases. So. so in, in this case, God is looking at someone, and, and I'm going to look at another scripture here, and we're going to talk about both of them. In Psalm 17, the psalmist is saying, 
Incline your ear to me and hear my speech. Show your marvelous loving kindness to your right hand. O you who save those who trust in you, from those who rise up against them, keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me under the shadow of your wings from the wicked who oppress me, from the deadly enemies who surround me. Now, this is David speaking, I believe. Yes. And he's asking God to keep him as the apple of his eye, or keep his focus on David and his protection on David. And and that kind of gives us, I think, when we come back, what do you think the meaning of the apple of one's eye is? Well, I I think this is related to it, Gary. I grew up hearing this expression all the time, but... My father had like 16 or 17 different kind of fruit trees in our yard growing up. And, and what, a lot of them, most of them were apple trees of various kinds. So you, when you, if you've been around fruit trees, you know that some of the fruit gets, is bigger than others. And some of it's prettier. Some of it is more mature, more quickly. You can walk by an apple tree or orange tree or peach tree, something like that. And you can see some of the fruit and you're going to pick out one or two of those. And you're going to say, wow, I'm going to keep my eye on that one because that looks like it's going to be a really good one. And you watch it as it matures day by day. And then you decide when you're going to pick it and eat it. Nobody else gets it before you do. Or a bird doesn't get it, you see, because it's the apple of your eye. And I think that's where the meaning is, is to keep your eye on something. Because Uh, it was desirable. Special, desirable, and it means to then show special care or protection. And there's usually a reason for that. Right. Uh, And... Notice in Deuteronomy 32 that the last line that I read, why was God keeping Jacob as the apple of his eye, he says, and there was no foreign God with him. Because Jacob was worshiping God. God. Now here's the other side of that idiom in Hebrew, more likely, Gary. I don't know this for sure, but from reading the the definition in in the Hebrew lexicons, the apple of the eye refers to the pupil of the eye. Okay, the eyeball, and then specifically the black the, or the pupil, the colored part of the eye. So, to keep something as the apple of the eye is to protect it and hedge it in like you do your own eyeball. People are real nervous about anything getting too close to their eye, and they and God has even put the eyeball. The Hebrews would say, or some of the commentators, you know, set back in the head with heavy bones around it, eyelashes, eyelids. So the idea is to protect something or to uh, value something so that you protect it. So when it says, David says, keep me as the apple of your eye, just like human beings value their eyes and they don't let anything happen to them and they protect them, that's what he's wanting God to do with him. Right. He's so it doesn't refer necessarily to the apple of the fruit, like I think it does, perhaps, but to the eyeball itself. Well, I don't actually, know. Well, no, he actually says in verse 9, that's when I went on to read that, that that's part of the mm-hmm. idea. He says... Hide me under the shadow of your wings right. from the wicked who oppress me and from the deadly enemies who surround me. He's so protect asking, me. Mm-hmm. He's asking for protection. Now, I think in another way, it has maybe another sense for us in Proverbs 7. I'm going to start reading at verse 1. It says, My son, keep my words and treasure my commandments within you. Keep my commandments and live and my law as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart, say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call understanding your nearest kin, that they may keep you from the immoral woman and from the seductress who flatters with her words. So he's talking about here, keep God's word or commandments as the apple of Right. Hold it dear and protect it and, and it cherish and it, it right and there. make it the focus. Now, there's another aspect of your eye that you see. Everything you see comes through your eye. Everything that I, as a Christian, I believe should see, and this is kind of how it came across to me, was that I should see everything through the eyes and commands of God. Everything that I approach and yes. see... You to, it has to be filtered and understood. I can only filtered. see something. The mind has to understand it. The heart right. perceives it. But it has to be filtered and understood through your eye, through the apple of your eye. That's, it's, it's important to me, and this comes back to what we say the show is about. The show, in, in, in my 
estimation to help our listeners is to understand God's word. Because that's what governs our life. That's what our focus. To lift it up as important and precious and right. as a focus of your life. Yeah, that's right. Uh, basically, if you look in Merriam-Webster about the desire of your eyes, you see this little phrase that says, uh, apple of one's eye, one that is highly cherished. We need to highly cherish God's word. Right. And I think that's part of it. I think that's part of the idiom. This this idiom was originally, in terms of an apple, as a translation for pupil or eye, came from the original King James back in, what was the year it came out? 1607 or something. 1611 or something. 1611, something like that, yes. Yeah, it, that was the original. And it's been kept by a couple of translations, though no, not all of them use that uh, that term. I looked it up. But uh, that word is, is basically primarily the pupil, secondarily the eyeball, I believe, from the definitions that are in it. Yeah, yeah that, and I think that's I think that's the correct understanding of it. As, as if it's an, an an eyeball, or it's something that the eyeball is perceiving that is precious. It has eventually it ends up at the same meaning of precious, protected, desired, whatever. It, the, both of the two ways of seeing that idiom end up at the same place, and uh, and it's interesting. That, it's just amazing. I, we should have done. A, I didn't think about. It. We should have done a whole show on common uh, idioms or expressions that have come into our our language. And there's a lot of them around, you know, yes. that we don't even realize. And some of them we attribute to, like Abraham Lincoln, a house divided against itself shall not stand. Well, Jesus said yeah, that. Yeah. It wasn't Abraham Lincoln, you know, who said right. that. But uh, but he did quote, he was quoting the Bible. And a lot of Benjamin Franklin's sayings have come from the Bible, as especially like Proverbs. By the way, that passage I mentioned as another type of idiom I grew up with, a figure of speech is uh, from in Ecclesiastes. And I said Proverbs. I think it was, it's Ecclesiastes, uh, verse chapter ten, verse twenty. Do not, not the curse bird. the little bird. Yes. yes. Do not curse the king, even in your thought. Do not curse the rich, even in your bedroom. For a bird of the air may carry your voice, and a bird in flight may tell the matter. So he, so there's a little, just, bird got, tell you. Yeah, a little bird might tell you. And so she was saying that. Yeah, you think you're being all secretive or you have a secret, uh, but you don't. <laughs> and warning me that that the secrets of that, that hidden things will all come to light eventually. And that's a, you know, we don't like to think about that. But hidden things come to light. Yeah, we're seeing things come to light in the news today that a lot of people would have liked to have kept secret of. Yes, and they tried. People tried. So, uh, you can't always hide these things. Uh, but that's... The last one where it's used is in Zechariah 2. It's a little bit different word, but it's again translated apple. It's Zechariah 2, beginning in verse 8. For thus says the Lord of hosts, He sent me after glory to the nations which plunder you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. For surely I will shake my hand against them, and they shall become spoil for their servants, and you shall know. Lord of hosts has sent me. I think this is a messianic passage myself. Mm-hmm. But, uh, mm-hmm. but he's talking about, you know, if you if you touch this one, you're touching God's eye. Mm-hmm. Something that he protects. Yes. And nobody and, likes that. And so Check your eyes. So th- those are some of the usages that I thought were interesting that we've adopted into English uh, and, and use them, though not always I think in the way that scripture intended to there's a final one in Ezekiel 24 that's not the same. Uh, he uses this in Ezekiel 24, and it's maybe it's an illustration that we might want to talk about a little bit, Mike. It's Ezekiel the prophet is being told something here. And I'm going to start reading in verse 15 of Ezekiel 24. He says, Also the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, behold, I take away from you the desire of your eyes with one stroke. Yet you shall neither mourn nor weep, nor shall your tears run down. Sigh in silence, make no mourning for the dead. Bind your turban on your head and put your sandals on your feet. Do not cover your lips and do not eat man's bread of sorrows. So I spoke to the people in the morning and in the evening my wife died and the next morning I did as I was commanded. It's a hard thing. Yes. And this is the 
desire of his eyes. He, he loved this woman. It was the one he, the thing he wanted the most. The impression here is, is, is my guess was that Ezekiel's wife was probably a very beautiful woman. And certainly to him. And you know, this it's funny. For all the time I try to teach teenagers, you know, young people, you need to look at more than physical beauty when you're choosing a mate. That's all true. That's very true what I say. But the truth is, so many people I know, including me, we had a reaction the first time we saw the woman we're now married to, or even the man we're now married to. We had a reaction that was different than with other people. So often that's the case, not every time. And uh, I remember, as I told the story before, I, I, when I, the first time I saw my wife, she was 17, I was 21, and, and I, w- I was with my girlfriend at the time. We walked up to the end of the lunch line there and to call the first day of classes at college and just walked up to there, and there's two girls standing there. And I, we introduced ourselves, and when I introduced myself, or she introduced herself to me, this uh, my, now my wife, I looked in her eyes, and I looked at her face, and I thought to myself, I have to remember this one. <laughs> it just I was just struck by her features, her not just physical beauty, but there was something in her eyes, if I would say, that told me that there was something there. I can't explain it now. Now, now it was a some by the within the eight months from then or whenever it was. That was August, late August, early September. By February, we were married. In February, we were married, and so. And, and this kind of thing has happened over and over to people that I know. And so the eye and the visual, the, the, what you put on something when you see it is uh, very, it's a human characteristic. Well, and that's why he's saying set your desire, your heart on the beauty of God's word and God himself as the apple of your eye. And that God set himself, then God will set himself upon you individually as the apple of his eye to protect you and, and help you. That's the other. That's really what we desire the most is for God to set His eye on us. We right. want to know that God cares about me, not just humans in general, but cares about me. Well, that's what the psalmist was saying yes. when, he, when he says yes. this. David was saying, "Protect me. Look, keep your eye on me. Keep yeah. your focus on me." And there is a general way in which God sends His reign upon the just and the unjust. And as they told the uh, Paul told the pagans in Acts thirteen that He has sent fruitful seasons and rain to bless all the nations. There's a particular sense in which he had the nation of Israel in the Old Testament set upon in his, in his vision, now in Christians, but also as individuals, God cares about each and every one. Christ came to save, to seek and save that which was lost. And here's the important parable. It's the the shepherd, Jesus tells, tells that leaves the 90 and 9 and goes and seeks how many? The one. The one. Now, the meaning of that parable to me is not just that God seeks care, is that he cares about each individual one of his people, and that's you or me who are serving him. So that's the meaning of the apple of his eye. And it's kind of like that little ewe lamb that Nathan told David about. This fellow had a little small, beautiful lamb that he just picked it out of his flock. This is the one I like. And he brought it into his house, made it into a pet, and then someone killed it and ate it. David said, that man should be put to death. Of course, he was... He said, you're the man. You're, you're, you're the one that should be put to death. You took you took Uriah's wife and, and killed him. So, uh, but that story is just the same thing. Here is a, in, a, in a group of animals, some people, you just pick out one, and that's the one you like. Go to select, go to select a puppy, and there's a whole litter of puppies. And there's the one that catches your eye for various reasons. Maybe to you, it may be the runt. Maybe your dad's trying to say, "Don't pick the runt; it'll die." But you're—that's the one you want, you know. So there's various reasons why we pick the one we do. Now, now we're getting into marriage counseling, Gary. There's various reasons why you pick the one that you do. Why that one catches your eye that may need to be examined more deeply. Well, but God does this with us. You use the. David's analogy there. There was an analogy between the lamb and what David had done. I, I want to go back to Ezekiel for just a minute because this seems kind of harsh upon the first reading that uh, Ezekiel would be told, "Don't mourn. Uh, I'm going to your wife. I'm going to take your wife from you." You know, we have a hard time explaining that because we don't like those ideas. But we know, there was, we- but there was a greater purpose for this. Ezekiel was acting out something that he was supposed to teach the people. 
and God uses these events, and I'm firmly convinced that Job was one of them. He used what Job did and what Job endured to teach us a lesson. In this case, Ezekiel was to teach the people of Israel that they shouldn't be have such a an attachment to Jerusalem and the temple and all the things that were the physical things that God had put before them. They should not be doing that because he was fixing to destroy it. Right. That's that's the context of Ezekiel. Now, what's the overall lesson here, Mike? This is the one that I wanted to get, is that we look with our eyes to see things. We understand and we see things that we cherish. And the things that we should cherish are God's attention to us. We should cherish his word and his command. We should be seeing those things as the important things of our life. And, and even and it's, it's, it's all through scripture. Uh, Psalm 119. Everybody's heard Psalm 119 verse 105. I know your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We should be thinking of God's word as the thing that steers us, the thing that guides us in everything that we do. To me, this is the lesson that's being taught over and over through these scriptures as we understand the idioms and their use by the different people who who, uh, called on God. Keep me as the apple of your eye. And so those things. Yes, and that's what people really are desiring when they seek God is they're seeking individual protection and or to be loved, individually loved. And uh, that is something that Christianity promises that other religions do simply do not promise. When somebody texted in and said, John says uh, that I think that's why arranged marriages last longer because older, wiser people pick for you maybe than just you looking at somebody. Now we have e-harmony. I said, well, I, I this is changing the subject a little bit, but the reason the arranged marriages last longer in many times is because they're actually based on commitment, not individual emotional preferences at any particular time. Or what we would call love, quote-unquote love, which is oftentimes infatuation. And uh, unless ma- a marriage is based on commitment, it's not going to work in the long run. Or if it starts off by being based on the emotions and passions of romantic love, if it doesn't change to being based on commitment, despite the difficulties, it won't make it. And and the same thing is true of Christianity. So many people are get all hot for God, you know, and all passionate about how dedicated they are to God, and then a year or two, they're back doing what they were going to do because they're life no is disappointing, and they're not committed to it. That's why Jesus says you got to count the cost and don't put your hand to the plow and look back and those kind of things because it's a, it's a long-range commitment. I've seen so many times people become a Christian, they're all enthusiastic, and in a very short time, they're faced with a temptation, a disappointment, a tragedy, and God forces them to make a decision. I really do believe this, or I'm just going to go about, go back like I was. And you're forced to make that decision. And the truth is, Gary, I think you're forced to make that decision over and over again as a Christian, well, all through life. Basically, one of the things that I keep coming back to is that the Word of God, through which we should be seeing all if we don't keep that before us, we don't get that commitment. Right. Uh, I mean, Psalm 1, 1 and 2, uh, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. How many times have we heard this? Nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. Right. That's what we're about here. We need to be meditating on God's word day and night. We should be looking at it every day. A continual basis, that's right. That's that's what it means to make it make <coughs> his commandments the apple of our eye. Now, you know, um, I was going to slightly change gears here unless you have other scriptures you want to talk about with that. I think you might, but I don't know. Well, no, I can, I've, I've got a few. But let, we, we well, let me, no, just let me give the numbers and then we can finish that. Then I want to go a little bit different direction about this idea of the apple. Uh, but, uh, the numbers here to reach us on We Are Just Christians are 772-340-1590. That's the number to call in, 772-340-1590. Ray there at the station will patch you right through to us, and we can have a conversation. And we'll kind of treat each other like gentlemen and ladies, and we're not going to 
to be mean and nasty or embarrassing. And uh, we're going to try to accomplish something by thinking carefully, whether you agree or disagree about whatever topic. So feel free to change the topic if you'd like, 772-340-1590. All right, Gary, go ahead and well, finish one, up the scriptures you want to talk about. Because uh, when I read Psalm 1, verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in, in his law he meditates day and night. Jesus made some pretty stark cautions about this. This is, I can't overemphasize the importance of this, the importance of God's word, the importance of us meditating on it and understanding it both day and yeah. night. He says uh, in Matthew 15, Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Now he had the circumstances before that. He called the Jews, in this case, hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. That's a charge that can apply to us today. And we need to know and understand God's word and practice it. And I just want to leave it with that thought. And we can go, we can go wherever, wherever you'd like. But that keeping God's law in our mind and in our heart and making it the focus of our thoughts and eye in that metaphorical sense is necessary to keep it law. Right. Uh, that's exactly right. And I think people could begin to notice then how many times that they 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 uh, pick out something by the by looking at it that becomes special to them, and or how sensitive they are about protecting their eye from any kind of danger. Well, and so that's the meaning of the metaphor. So and the Bible's filled with those kind of idioms, and you have to take the time to kind of look it up and meditate on it. If you meditate on the and think about and look up the meanings of these idioms to some degree. There's plenty of resources out there easily accessible to you uh, either by book or on the internet that can explain some of these to you. And so you don't even need to make up stuff on your own. You can read it and then you can begin to understand what it means. study in this day, we live in such a wonderful age in terms of computer-aided study of God's Word. We have we have advantages people have never had in history before. And yet I read so much junk on the internet about religious things where people are trying to interpret some passage and they're just using their own seat of their pants to some well, degree. Well, like, and, let's, and, let's, and some poor presuppositions and then they're off the track. Their feelings, they're well, off the track. Well, the point is that I'm trying to say is we have good things that are computerized. Mm-hmm. Strong definitions mm-hmm finds definitions of words in both the Old and New Testament. We have uh, computer programs that can sort by phrase and bring us all the different passages that bring us together. We don't have to depend on what somebody says on the Internet. As a matter of fact, I agree with you. It's not a good idea to go out there and just search just, for the answer. Just, on the find, just find anybody and read them, and, and you find a lot of stuff that's just completely off the track. Uh, so you have to have, you need to go to some of the, it's like me recommending a Bible translation. There's so many Bible translations, particularly modern ones. And I have nothing against modern language. In fact, I, I would recommend a couple but of modern ones. But uh, a lot of them, like the, the message you hear quoted so often yes. called the message, is just trash. It's just one man's even irreverent opinion about how how the Bible should be quote-unquote translated. And it, it really isn't a translation at all you you need you need something that's based on a literal mode uh, model of translation and most of the versions will give you if you read the introductions their mode whether it's phrase by phrase word by word thought for thought you know they'll give you their mode and or even a combination of those dynamic equivalency all different kinds of names but you need to pick out one of the major well-known literal translations like the King James or the New King James or, or the New American Standard Bible or the uh, American Standard Bible. Or the, English, there, or the English Standard. English Standard Version. ESV is a good modern one. Uh, and there's several others. I point people to those because even though I disagree with some of the translations that are in each of those have, have flaws, they're at least making an attempt to give you the words that are there in the original Greek and Hebrew. 
And then you can then take your mind and the other research tools and come to know what that exactly means for us today. Whereas if you start with somebody's opinion, like the message or the living Bible, now you're already off track before you ever got started. Yes. Because you're not dealing with a literal translation. I want to know what Jeremiah wrote and what Paul wrote in the words that he wrote them in as best I can. That takes a little work, but, but much of that work has been done for you by, by people that aren't even Christians who know languages. And we need to say that's that, why you know to go to the literal translations. And we need to make the point, I think, Mike, is we can have, due to the number of transcripts that we have and the comparisons of those transcripts, we have a very accurate representation of what was written. We do. Especially, now, now, people say, well, you know, the message has its place. It's nice to read. No, I, my advice to you, all things considered, is take the book, that take your, if you have a, me, a copy of the message at home, here's what I'd like you to do. Walk over to your trash can, open the lid, and throw it in. Okay? That would be the best thing you could do with that. Okay? Because it's not going to lead you in the right direction of understanding biblical passage. It's going to lead as often lead you astray or divert you from the true meaning of the text. By and I know people disagree with that. That sounds kind of radical, but I would rather you do that than than kind of blend together some amalgam of of not of, of non non literal translations and so forth. So there are different modes of translating from one language to another. You can't always go word to word. I understand that, but you do have to have someone who understands when the writer in Hebrew is using the expression or when he's using a name as opposed to an idea. And there there are versions that do a better job of that than others. That's why I prefer, personally, the old 1901 American Standard. Yes. Because it, it even keeps the names in their original meaning and so forth. And I just, I like, it. it takes more work to dig it out sometimes. But at least I can do the digging myself and not already be led astray by somebody. Look, if you're trying to tell me what some word in, uh, in Ubuntu means, I, I don't know how to, I wouldn't know if you're telling me the truth or not, right? You could tell me anything. But considering I'm dealing with, uh, if, I, if I had a resource though that would give me what the, give me what the actual meaning was in this African language, maybe I could begin to put it into my words in English. And so that's the problem with these uh, translations. Some are blends of dynamic equivalence and literal, and you know, and you have to kind of look at that. Uh, you can have your own preference. People have liked the King James Version for centuries, even though it's been modified down through the years. Um, they've liked it because it's a combination of beauty and literacy, literal translation. It isn't the best, maybe, on either one, but it's a good combination. And uh, although I'm not the biggest fan of the King James Version, because some of the newer translations, as one of our textures just mentioned, are based on older manuscripts, there's a lot to be said for the King James Manuscript. And I'm not going to dismiss uh, the Textus Receptus just because uh, somebody thinks there's a better one out there necessarily. There's a lot of evidence for the Texas Recept as well as the others. And yet I don't read, yet I don't prefer the King James or even the New King James Version personally. When I present my lessons up here in here at the church building, I put up on our PowerPoint screen pretty much every scripture I read. Almost every scripture and all my sermons and lessons have lots of scriptures in them. When I quote them, I'm putting up the King, the New King James Version up on the screen. The reason I do that is because it is a reliable translation. It's been modified from the original King James to be more modern in its language. But it's something people are used to hearing and seeing, you know. Um, but you use one of the major translations, and then you can have an idea of what God's saying. All right, Gary, we got way off track there. I'm ranting and raving here. Well, uh, I, 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 finish since, up what you're saying. No, here. I want to get us, you know, I want to complete that track just a little bit. Okay. We've talked about translations, and, and, and I wish our listeners would write down the King James, the New King James, the, American Standard, the New American Standard, the English Standard Version, that 19 and 3 American Standard. 1901 is plain American Standard, Standard. yes. Well, some people like the Revised Standard. Um, 
I don't really personally don't like the new international version, but uh, other people say it's real literal and good. Uh, it, it, at least they've made an attempt with the new international to be literal. Okay, although I some of the some of the scriptures they translated are just simply taken right out of the Calvinist creed books. Okay, they're they're not really. You gotta like, be. Yeah, they, they've taken the word nature and made it a Calvinist word rather than the common Hebrew understanding of it. But anyway, go so, ahead. So so there's some other things that are good study aids, and I want to mention those too. Vine's Expository Dictionary of Old Testament Words. Which you can buy as a hardback book or get on the internet, internet, right? And Vine's Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words. Those are, that is a, those two books are tremendous study aids. And they do nothing but define words and point you to different places in the scripture where it's used. Yes, and what they do is they give you, an expository dictionary is one where they've expanded just from a a one or two word definition to give you a little more fullness or background on a word. So let's take the word lust. There's one word in English in lust, of, of the lust, but there's this comes into our Bible as the one word in English, but in Greek or Hebrew, there might be two or three words that this is brought from, and they'll give you, when you look up lust, it'll give you each of those words and tell you what they mean, what they mean and then give you places in the Bible where they're used. So you see the scriptures. And, and so a, you can then check out what it means in the verse you're looking at. And what we're really not used to is take another word, love. The same thing is true. Right. And, and the Greek has about what was it? It's four, four. Four, four different words. And these will be identified in these dictionaries. The other one that I wanted to point out, and I hope our listeners are writing this down, is Strong's Concordance. Strong's definition, Strong's Dictionary has... The same approach yes. defines every word in the Old and New Testament. And you can then, and the, the value of the, I used to do this by hand, but the value of the computer thing is it can show you all the passages where that particular Hebrew or Greek word is used all across the text from book to book, as opposed to the other words that are used. Right. So there's a difference between, I was talking to somebody about this the other day. Husbands are told to love their wives. Well, English here's the word love. Well, it can mean a lot of things. Hollywood, uh, Playboy bunnies, you know, that's love. And and we love pizza and, you know, whatever. But the word used for love there in that passage in Ephesians is agape. This is the selfless love of self-sacrifice and looking out for the good of the other person love. That God has. That's That's how husbands are supposed to love their wives. Then he talks about, then he says, Paul says in 1 Timothy uh, 3, that, that older women are to teach the younger women. 1 Timothy 5, maybe. Teach the old women, teach the younger women to love their husbands. That's a whole different word for love. It's philandros. Philos was another word for love, which means um, it's a reciprocal, brotherly kind of love. Okay? More more emotional in nature. It may be, and it's based on the treatment in a relationship. Sometimes agape and philae are used interchangeably in the Bible to some degree, and they were in Greek. But there's a difference in those two the meanings. What that means, philandros, means to love him because he's a man or as a man. And it speaks to the problem that so many women want their husband to be a woman in the, in the way he acts and thinks, and they don't they don't like him because he's male. And the, this thing says the older teach teach the young women to love him because he's a man and does manly things that are different than what you do and respect that. That's what that means. Uh, of course. What he tells husbands is to live with your wife, Peter does, First Peter 3, according to knowledge. He has to get to know his wife, which is the same, right. same thing. So it, there are differences in the words. This is brought out, if you look at Vines and Strong's, you'll see the differences. And over time, then it gives you a richer understanding. And then when you read something on the Internet, you can evaluate whether this person is just being silly or being shallow, or misinterpreting a scripture, or whether they're actually adding something that good to your knowledge when you read them. That's how, to me, it should be now, used. Now, there's one more I want to mention. All right. And that's a Greek interlinear. I've used those quite a bit. What this does is it gives you right side by side the Greek word and the English word as it's translated across. And that can be very valuable. 
to you. And in, in most computer programs, you can actually link the definition of that Greek word right there with the English word. Right. Without having to go through a whole lot of different things. But that can be a very valuable tool in understanding because the Greeks didn't speak in the same order of verb, uh, adjective, you know, noun as we do in English. And sometimes it has a little bit different connotation in it when, when we look at it. At least we can understand it, I think, better. I use it quite often. Yes, and interlinear. And you can't always go word for word. Right. That doesn't happen with any human language. But you can get, uh, you can begin to see the word for word places. And then you see where it's not a word for word, what they've done. You can see that. what the translators had to do to get right. you where you are, which is which is important in a lot of cases. So, for example, in English, we translate the phrase first day of the week. In Greek, it is mia sabbation, which is the first day after the Sabbath. Okay. Two words comes into as four words or five words, however many first day of the week is. So, and yet, and there's, that's the, the words are not exactly brought over one-to-one -one because we wouldn't even understand what it meant. Well, we could. I would prefer it to be the other way, but it generally comes. Now, right. then, if a person goes further and says, calls it Sunday or Saturday night, as some versions do, is that a translation? Mm, not really. Okay. One's attempted translation. One's not even attempted. One is then an interpretation. Saturday right. night as or Sunday. So... You got lots of stuff like that, but but Mike, those those tools are good tools to use. Yes, the tools are very good tools to use, and and you be, they slowly begin to increase your foundation of knowledge, which will help you. And uh, there are many others like that. Now, then, when you want to get in something like a commentary, you have to understand what you're dealing with. They're very helpful. Some and I can recommend some basic whole Bible commentaries to people. They can be good, but they can be but not good. You have to understand what you're looking at. You're looking yes. at one person's understanding of this text. He may be a scholar. You can't take it for what it is. You have to always re-examine it. And sometimes he can help with those those kind of issues that we're talking about. Sometimes they're not helpful. I often use Clark because he's on my computer here, Adam Clark from the 1800s. He's good, but sometimes I read it and I go, yeah, I don't think so. Because it just doesn't fit. You see his being a Presbyterian coming to the front, you know, whatever it is. Yeah rather than him being a Bible interpreter. Well, we got about 12 minutes left. Let me give the numbers again, 772-340-1590. 772-340-1590 is the number here in Port St. Lucie. You can reach the show, or you can text us at 772-260, either 6120 or 6220. Well, Gary, when you bring up the word apple, you uh, asked that apple you, in the Bible. Okay, you can get to your last there, thing here. There, well, unless you've got more to go. No, there, no, there, no. There's another thing that I'm sure a lot of our listeners thought of. That I thought, well, we need, we need to just go ahead and talk about this today after you got started here me thinking about it. And that's this so-called Eve biting the apple, eating the apple in the Garden of Eden, right? Is that what you were thinking I was going to say? Uh, yeah, that's where uh, I thought you were oh, going Okay, go. all right. Yeah, this is this supposed apple. How many times have you seen pictures that people talk about the Eve taking it by the apple, and somehow the idea that Eve was condemned and Adam wasn't condemned. Man, there's just so much misunderstanding is a nice way to put it about this passage and what it means in the Bible. Oh, we could, we could make shows on all the yes, misunderstood but, passages. Right, but let me just tell you something. The Bible does not ever say, ever, ever, ever say that Eve ate an apple in the Garden of Eden. And it talks I, about the fruit. It, it just talks about fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and it doesn't say that it does not say that eve was the only one who committed sin and that because of eve all of us are condemned to sin it doesn't say that either in the bible but this is such a common thing and a lot of bad theology by a lot of even different common i guess we have a call though gary I, I i'm sorry i didn't see this come up here uh ralph are you on the line there I'm no. not hearing Ralph. Turn you up. Not getting me through. Hang yeah, on no. one second. Let me let me bump you up a little bit. Make sure I can hear you. Go ahead, Ralph. All right, go ahead. Can Can you hear me now? I can. Yes. Yeah. I, hey, I I really appreciate your uh, your broadcast. 
in a day where we see so many examples of good being called evil and evil being called good. Well, that's a real problem, isn't it? Uh, oh, I'm telling you. Now, I visited, I believe I visited your church about a year ago. I was searching for a new church. Okay. Um, now, correct me if correct me if I'm in error, but is it true that you don't have any musical instruments in your services at all? We do not use mechanical instruments of music. We have musical instruments, and that's that's our hearts that we sing with to God because they've been sanctified. But I understand. We do not have mechanical instruments of music like an organ, a piano, drums, trumpets. Nope, right. we do not. Exactly. Well. Um, the, the scriptures is so full of examples of uh, instruments being used in praise. I could give you two. I'm not going to take a lot of time. Psalm 98, verses 5 and 6, and Second Chronicles uh, 7, 6. Yes, yeah, so there's, and there's dozens it more. It explained to me, you know, with reading those scriptures. Well, let me ask you this, Ralph. The scriptures also say that that the priest took uh, a lamb during the same worship service, they were using the instruments, and they slaughtered the lamb on the altar and spread its blood on the on the mercy seat. Do you think we should be doing that? Because it's in the Bible. See how that relates. Now, I, I well, it does relate because if I'm going to go back to the Old Testament and get an example of how they were told to worship then. Metal music and that kind of thing. Because a lot of this music is just praise and Wait a minute. I'm sorry, I couldn't catch what you were saying. There's a lot of what. I remember we've actually written some Christian songs, and I've had a little bit of a problem with, with the forbidding of piano or guitar, as long as the music was crazy. Well, here's here's the uh, how I would think, that, here's what our thinking is on this. And the truth is, Ralph, historically, from all the historians, the church did not use instrumental music until hundreds of years after the time of the apostles, using instrumental music in Christian worship is a, a new thing. It isn't us being different by not using the instrument. The early Christian churches did not use an instrument, and this is well documented historically. I don't know any. I don't know any historian, of whatever religion they would be, who right. showed you that the early church for hundreds of years, even the Catholic Church did not authorize mechanical music for hundreds of years after the time. You know, Charles Spurgeon, the most famous Baptist preacher of all time, who had a church of 50,000 people uh, in London in the 18, late 1800s, he, he did not use musical instruments because he said, I would just as soon pray with machinery as, as sing with it or praise with it. Because he said, you can't find it in the New Testament. The question is not whether it's in the Bible. The question is animal sacrifice is in the Bible. The question is whether it's in the New Testament as to how the church worshiped. And here, here's how that works. Let me see if I can explain this to you. When, when they brought in, when they brought any, oh, I'm sorry, Ralph, I think I cut you off. Go ahead. No, no, no I actually interrupted you. I apologize. Uh, it's, we got this little bit of delay here, so uh, forgive me if I step on you. All right, well, in the Old Testament, when they used anything in the temple, and I have to look this passage up here, but that's in Leviticus, I believe. When they brought anything into the temple, for example, or even into the even into the tabernacle before that, all of the instruments that they used, whether they were bowls, lavers, harps, whatever they were using, trumpets, they, they killed an animal and sprinkled the blood of the animal on that item so it could be made holy and yeah. sanctified to be used in the temple. Now, here's the here's the analogy. In the New Testament, the temple is the church, not the building, but the church. The people. The people. And if you're going to use anything in the temple of God, it has to be sanctified or made holy by blood. So just like they would, if they were going to use an organ back then, they would have to bring it into the temple, sprinkle blood on it, and make it holy, if they were going to use it. Well, now, in the New Testament church, how would, what, whose blood are we going to sprinkle on a piano or a drum set to make it holy? Well, I'm going to let you go. I appreciate your explanation. Well, no, let let me finish what I'm saying real quick, Ralph. (laughs) Uh, 
Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 6. If you could please read that and then explain that to me, I can understand. Okay, well, what I'm trying to get at is, I believe that the Old Testament did have instruments of music that were physical things that they were playing, and God authorized that at that time to be done. In the New Testament church, which is a spiritual institution, we also have instruments of music that have been brought into the temple to be used. Those instruments have also been sanctified by blood and made holy, and that's the human heart. I can, I can sprinkle blood of the blood of Christ on a human heart and make it holy to be used in God's temple. And that's what we do here. We have human hearts made holy by the blood of Christ that are instruments of praise and, and, and worship to God. In the Old Testament, they had literal physical priests, literal incense, literal animal sacrifices, and literal blood, literal harps, and other musical instruments, and they were all sprinkled by blood in the temple. We have spiritual instruments in the temple today. Now, that's probably the most concise. By the way, what's this, uh, what passage did you quote? Second Chronicles, because there are several of them. Come on, you're looking up that, Mike. Uh, okay, well, I've actually given you two scriptures. Yeah. From Psalms, uh, but yeah, the, Psalm one forty eight is filled with uh, praises of temple uh, harps and so forth. Yes, yeah, Second Chronicles chapter seven verse six. Okay, well, we, we can read those. I'm, I'm trying well, to give Tom, you. You're the, looking those up, Mike. I'd like to make one comment. The, the Catholic Church split over this, at least in part, over instruments of music. And today, the Greek Orthodox Church will not use instruments of music. We need to point that out. And the reason they say they will not use it is we have no authority from God to right. use it. You can't go to the New Testament in any scripture that talks about the church worshiping. You fi- Here's what you find in Ephesians chapter... Uh, by the way, let me read Second Chronicles uh, 7 sure. verse 6. And the priest attended to the services, the Levites also with instruments of the music of the Lord, which King David had made to praise the Lord, saying, For this mercy... His mercy endures forever. Whenever David offered praise by their ministry, and the priests sounded trumpets opposite them while all Israel stood. So I'm just trying to point out to you that, yes, in the Old Testament, God did offer instrument, uh, did authorize instruments to be used, but they had to be sprinkled by blood and sanctified and made holy to be used in no service. And I never realized that. How would we, my question is, how would we go about doing that today? Well, we can't. And here's what, uh, let me read, let me read this verse to you that I think will maybe explain a little bit. It's in the book of Ephesians in the New Testament. And he says here that, uh, in verse 18, do not be drunk with wine, Ephesians 5, 18, which, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Now this word making melody is the word solo, solo, like the word psalm. And it means the idea of, it has the idea of plucking or using something as an instrument. And so the, the, the instrument that we use in the New Testament to solo with is the heart, is the heart that's been sanctified by the blood of Christ. And that's why early Christians did not use instrumental music. It came along later, and the more sophisticated people got, the more they were interested in making and using instruments. At least that, now, now look, Ralph, we're kind of at the end of our show. This is a huge subject. Maybe we can talk about it more next week. But, um, I don't know if that clarifies our position or not. Right. Well, I'm, I'm still going to keep playing my guitar and, and praising the Lord in song. As I said, I write songs. Um, and I can understand, I've been in churches and I've actually walked out of the services because I don't want to hear rock and roll and uh, heavy metal music and the speakers are as big, you know, 12-foot speakers. And I disagree with that also. But I just think, uh, you know, genuine, you know, uh, honest praise music from the heart I guess uh, I'm not sprinkling blood on my guitar when when I make a song. Well, whose blood are you going to sprinkle on it? You can't sprinkle Christ's blood on it. That's the whole point. Exactly. So it, you got a problem. Well, listen, remember, our, our Jesus, time is... Jesus did put away the Old Testament. Yeah, the Old Testament's been done away with, and that's Jesus why we're going to use it. Jesus put that away when he died on the cross. He put away that Old Testament law and I authorization. Know. 
Well, yeah, Ralph, we're going to have to run. And I, it's, this is not something I, uh, this Christianity walk with me isn't something that started last month. Well, I, it's like 30 years. I really, really appreciate you listening to the show and calling in today. I thank you very much for all of you listening. Tune in again next week to We Are Just Christians, and may God bless you. Open my God.